Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting at verse 12 and reading through verse 17, the letter to the church in Pergamum. This fall we've been exploring what it means to be the church, and to do that we've been looking at these letters of Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Two weeks ago, Pastor Carl brought us to visit, to visit the church in Ephesus, a church which Christ encourages to rekindle its love, and we saw how love is a characteristic of the church. And last week, we traveled north up the coast of the Aegean Sea, as Pastor Amanda brought us to the persecuted church in Smyrna, a small and poor church which Christ encourages to stand firm in the face of suffering, and we saw how suffering is a characteristic of the church. And today, we travel even farther up the coast of the Aegean Sea, all the way up to the proud city of Pergamum, and to the church there, a church characterized by truth. This letter to the church in Pergamum is what we're going to be focusing on today. And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word because your word is truth. Lord, we thank you that in your word, you reveal yourself to us. You reveal your love for us in Christ Jesus. You reveal your will for our lives. Lord, we thank you that in your word, you make promises to us, promises that you keep. And Lord, we look forward to, to the day when all of those promises will be Lord, we pray that as we read your word today that we would be convicted of the ways in which we stray from your will, that we would be led by your spirit into all truth, and that we would be transformed more and more to reflect the likeness of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that we're coming to see 
as we walk through these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is a profoundly political book. The Lord Jesus, through the Apostle John, is writing to churches throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor, to churches and cities that pledged their allegiance to Rome and benefited greatly from Rome's power and dealt fiercely with those who denied the emperor's divine right to rule the whole earth. And this was the political situation that the early Christians found themselves in, living in a part of the world that required recognition of the Roman emperor as the one true Lord and King over all the earth. For the earliest Christians, this wasn't a huge problem. And we see in 1 Peter and in Paul's letters to the churches in Rome and Galatia that the early apostolic writers advocated simply living in peace and quiet, obeying the laws, keeping your head down, staying out of trouble. But as Pastor Amanda, as Pastor Amanda pointed out last time, the earliest Christians enjoyed the religious exemptions that were extended to Jews in the Roman Empire, and so they weren't required to swear allegiance to Caesar or to hail him as Lord and King over all the earth. But by the time that we get to the book of Revelation, around the turn of the first century, the political situation has changed. Christians are beginning to be seen as a threat both to traditional Judaism and to the greater power of the Roman Empire. Christians throughout the empire are being kicked out of synagogues, condemned as radicals, and denied the religious exemptions that allowed Jews to worship freely. Because Christians believed that Jesus, and not Caesar, was the one true Lord and King over all the earth, the Roman Empire started to crack down, seeing them as a threat to the sovereignty of the emperor. And under the reign of the Emperor Domitian, which is when John wrote the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire's persecution of Christians reached new heights. Domitian revived the practices of the imperial cult, a policy that required Roman citizens to swear allegiance to the emperor in temples devoted to the emperor and to confess that the emperor was the son of God. Domitian built new temples to, to previous emperors throughout the Roman Empire and required citizens to worship at these temples. And since Christians were no longer protected by the Jewish, Jewish religious exemptions, and since they wouldn't participate in the observance of the imperial cult, they posed a particular problem to the authority of Rome, a threat that had to be dealt with. And so the book of Revelation is written to a persecuted church a church opposed by the political authority of the empire that they lived in, a church stripped of wealth and power and cultural influence. In the opening sermon on this series, I talked about how the early church writers understand the book of Revelation as a sort of unveiling, like drawing back the curtain, revealing the lies of Rome for what they really were, a false story that was designed to keep the emperor in power. But in the face of Rome's false story, the book of Revelation offers a true story. The story of how Jesus is the one true king over all the earth. The story of how Jesus controls history and stands over it as the terrible and powerful emperor of the universe. The story of how Jesus holds the angels in his hands and commands them to care for his church, to care for his people, even as he himself walks among the lampstands, a constant 
abiding presence in the church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained true to my name and have not denied my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city in the house of Satan. The letter to Pergamum, like all the letters in Revelation, begins with a description of who Jesus is. And as we've already seen, this image of who Jesus is is an invitation for the church to see themselves in light of who Jesus is. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus was described as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands, inviting the church to see Jesus as a constant and abiding, loving presence in their midst. <coughs> in the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus is described as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, inviting the church to see that Jesus is more powerful than the persecution that, they, that they're facing, more powerful even than death. And in the letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. And this would have been an image that was familiar to Christians, because the image of the double-edged sword is used in other places in Scripture to refer to the word of God, to the word of truth, which cuts through bone and marrow, cuts to the soul. Jesus is the one who holds the word of truth, that cuts through the lies that surround that's, that, that we are surrounded with, the, the, the sword that cuts through the lies and reveals the truth of things. Pergamum was a powerful and impressive city. And for a long time, it was the capital of the region of Asia Minor until the capital was moved to Ephesus just shortly before the book of Revelation was written. Before the province of Asia became a part of the Roman Empire, the whole region of of uh, Western Turkey was called the Kingdom of Pergamum. <coughs> Excuse me. Pergamum was the kind of city that you could see for miles around. It had a, a really high hill, sort of like the mountain in Hamilton, that the city center was built on top of. And this city center called the Acropolis had, had temples and, and um, yeah, a lot, lots and lots of temples um, devoted to the Roman gods. Um, and one of the greatest of these temples was a temple built to the Emperor Augustus and to the goddess Roma, who was a deification of the Roman Empire. This would have been the center of the imperial cult in the city of Pergamum. So you have this city, this proud city, this high city, this city that can be seen for miles around. But the words of Jesus cut right through this image. Jesus doesn't allow the myth of great and noble Pergamum to persist. He isn't caught up in the sights or impressed by the temples. Jesus describes Pergamum as the throne of Satan, of the accuser of the devil. The temples in Pergamum are not impressive, Jesus says. They are houses of Satan, the house of the enemy of God's people. The Christians in Pergamum, like the Christians in Smyrna, had already been kicked out of the Jewish synagogues. They no longer enjoyed the religious exemptions given to the Jews, and this had already led to some persecution in the city, as we can see from the reference to Antipas, who had been martyred in Pergamum. 
Jesus commends the Christians in Pergamum for remaining true to his name, for standing up for their faith, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. The church in Pergamum was devoted to truth in a culture and in a city that was opposed to the truth. And for this, Christ praises and encourages the Christians there. But not everything is rosy. Jesus goes on to tell the church, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. <coughs> In the face of persecution, Christians have one of two options. They can stand up for the truth, or they can compromise with the culture that's persecuting them. And the Nicolaitans were a group of Christians that tried to adapt their faith to the Roman culture. They tried to find a way to be Christians while still enjoying the benefits of upper-class Roman society. And the book of Revelation characterizes the Nicolaitans using Old Testament language, like the reference here to Balaam, a Moabite prophet who was hired to curse the Israelites. And next Sunday when we read the letter to Thyatira, we'll see that the Nicolaitans are uh, associated with Jezebel, the wicked queen of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the story of Balaam might not seem like an immediately obvious one to us. Some of us probably know the story of Balaam's donkey uh, in Numbers 22. Balak, the king of Moab, calls on Balaam, who's a prophet, to come and curse the Israelites as they're passing through the land of Moab. And Balaam refuses because God tells him that he can't do that. But King Balak persists, and so God tells Balaam, okay, you can go, that's fine. And so Balaam goes along riding on a donkey. And three times as he's traveling to meet King Balak, the donkey turns off the path and lays down. And the text tells us that the donkey turned off the path because there was an angel of the Lord blocking his way. But Balaam can't see the angel, and so every time the donkey stops, he beats the donkey until the donkey gets up, and then he continues along his way. But the third time, the donkey talks to Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? <laughs> um, and then Balaam sees the angel and repents, and he goes on to meet Balak, and instead of cursing Israel, he blesses Israel seven times. So this doesn't seem like an obvious story of leading Israel into sin, of leading God's people into sin. But Balaam's blessings are not where the story ends. In Numbers 25, as Israel is camping in the land of Moab, Moabite women come to them and seduce them, causing them to commit sexual immorality and eat a feast sacrificed to pagan gods. And we learn later in Numbers 31, verse 16, that this was on the advice of Balaam. So even though Balaam couldn't curse Israel himself, he did help Balak to find a way to get the Israelites to bring a curse on themselves by committing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And these are the two sins mentioned here as well. In the New Testament, when we see sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols paired together, these are sort of the, the um, archetypical uh, sins that, that constitute rebellion in the Old Testament. So, so what the New Testament is saying here is that they're leading God's people into rebellion. They're leading God's people against the will of God. 
And there might be a more literal sense to sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols here, and we'll get to that in a second. But what the book of Revelation is saying here is that the Nicolaitans are leading God's people into rebellion and sin by compromising with the Roman pagan culture. And this would have been a huge temptation for the early Christians, especially for Christians who were wealthy. Outside of Jewish markets, it was almost impossible to find meat that hadn't been sacrificed to idols. And temple, pe temple feasts were an important place to network and build business connections. And so going to a religious feast in the ancient world was like going to a restaurant nowadays. All of the things that we do today, like birthday parties and buck and does and wedding receptions and anniversary parties, retirement parties, all of these things in the ancient world would have been at pagan temples with feasts using food that was sacrificed to idols. These temples were like our community centers or, or our parks or our halls, like our church, right? We, we come here to do a lot more than worship. We come here to have potlucks and, and to enjoy each other's fellowship and to have uh, meetings and, and committee meetings and all sorts of stuff. And that's what temples were like in the ancient world. And so by making the, de the decision that they wouldn't participate in events that took place in temples, the early Christians were basically excusing themselves from all cultural life. It was a huge sacrifice for them. And for the Nicolaitans, it was too much of a sacrifice. The Nicolaitans wanted to be able to be Christians without giving up their culture. They wanted to be able to go to their friends' birthday parties and, and wedding receptions and anniversary dinners. And so in the name of Christian freedom, they, they advocated participating in the broader culture of the Roman Empire, even though it had these religious undertones. But the book of Revelation is clear that these cultural practices are not neutral. They are religious, and they are the religion of Satan. They use a strong language. So the book of Revelation says a Christian can't go to a pagan temple and pour out a blessing before an idol and eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol and think that it's just a cultural thing without any religious significance. All of these practices have religious meaning. And in the case of temple feasts, all of these practices contribute to the lie that the emperor of Rome is the one true lord and king over all the earth. And so in the face of these practices of the Nicolaitans, Jesus calls the church to repent. And this goes back to the image that Christ presented at the beginning of the letter, the image of Christ with the double-edged sword of truth, the image of Christ as more powerful than the lies of the Roman Empire, the double-edged sword, the word of God, is seen as a weapon of truth that the Spirit uses to cut through the lies of the enemy. And like every letter in Revelation, the letter to Pergamum ends with a promise. Whoever has, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the church that stays true to his name in the face of persecution and cultural pressure, Jesus promises the benefits of the covenant. He promises the secret manna, the food that God fed the Israelites in the desert with, which will nourish his people even when it seems as though they have nothing to eat. 
He will give them a new name, a new identity found only in him, even when it seems as though there is no place for them in the world. The manna, in a lot of ways, points to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, in which Christ feeds our souls in a dry and thirsty land. And the white stone points to the sacrament of baptism, in which Christ marks us as his own and gives us a new name found only in him. This is the truth that Jesus promises to his church in Pergamum. Even though the lies of the enemy surround you, I will cut through them with my truth. Even though your culture may offer you nothing to nourish your soul, I will give you secret manna to sustain you. Even though your culture may offer you nothing to establish your identity, I will give you a new name found only in me. The letter to the church in Pergamum teaches us that even when it might seem like the whole world is against us, our true identity, our true sustenance, can be found only in Jesus Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people say. O oh Lord, our God and our King, we thank you and we praise you that you are the one true King over all the earth. Lord, we pray that you will give us the courage to stand up for our faith when culture seems against us. We pray that you will help us to lean on your truth when we don't know what else to do. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ holds the sharp double-edged sword. Amen. <laughs>